Welcome back, everybody. This is another episode of Conversations on Inares. My name is Joseph Orozco. I'm the co-director of the Inares Project for Alternative Futures. The Inares Project is a forum for conversations, projects, and initiatives that try to envision a future free of oppression, exploitation, domination, war, and empire. And one of the projects that we have initiated is this forum, Conversations on Inares, in which we talk to scholars, writers, artists, and organizers about the work they do to try to bring about these alternative futures. I'm very excited today about our guest. It's a deep honor to have her here today. Uh, I've been a big fan of her work and her thinking about the Star Trek universe and science fiction in general for some time. And uh, she has agreed to come on to the program. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Una McCormick. She is a New York Times bestselling author. And for over 20 years, she has written franchise fiction or novel tie-in stories for several major science fiction franchises, including Star Trek, Firefly, and Doctor Who. In particular regard to Star Trek, she has written several novels that illuminate the world of Cardassia from DS9. And she's been an author of two fictional autobiographies in the Star Trek universe, that of Captain Catherine Janeway, and of the iconic character, Mr. Spock. She has degrees in history, political science, psychology. She received her PhD in sociology from the University of Surrey. I've asked her to come today to talk to us about her writing process and the preparation for the kind of work that she does, but also how she understands the kind of future portrayed in the Star Trek universe and the way in which we are picturing the future of humanity today through speculative fiction and film. So help me to welcome Dr. Una McCormick. Oh, thank you very much. That really lovely introduction. That's very kind of you. I'm delighted to be here. I love the podcast. I, I listen as often as I can, and not just to the Star Trek episodes. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Um, uh, it, it's been uh, a long time uh, uh, coming to speak with you, and I hope that we can continue to speak, and because I, so much of uh, my understanding of the Star Trek universe has been illuminated through your work, um, but I want to get to that a little bit later, uh, uh, but I'm just a very big fan, and so I thank you for taking time out to speak with us a little bit, but as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you know, part of the Nari's project, you know, we are inspired by the work of, of uh, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, not only was she local to us here in Oregon, but just a, a grand visionary and someone who is very thoughtful uh, about the ways in which we imagine uh, the, the the reaches of our, of the radical imagination about what is possible for humanity in the future. And she was someone who was very concerned with this, uh, not only in her work, but in her own personal life. And so uh, I, I, we enjoy speaking with authors who, who have this kind of inspiration for their own work. And uh, this is something that you bring, I think, to the writing that you do. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your writing process and how you, you think about your work. Um, as I mentioned, you've been writing science fiction franchise novels. So these are these are uh, this is fiction that uh, is a little bit different than fan fiction, uh, in the sense that fan fiction is uh, a lot of amateurs do fan fiction as sort of a hobby. They sort of write about their favorite characters uh, in their different uh, universes. Uh, you've taken this to a professional level. You are now someone that uh, people uh, in Star Trek come and reach out to producers in the in the world and say, "Hey, we want you to do." 
right? The autobiography of Mr. Spock or something. Um, so this is a, a professional uh, 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 vocation for you. Um, but I want to sort of step back to all of this and ask you about your 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 beginnings with science fiction um uh you know you've written more than probably 15 20 different science fiction novels i think we're at 20 now yeah easily yeah, yeah. So set in a variety of universes mm -hmm. right so you are conversant in this uh, with star trek characters uh with doctor who uh firefly and then sort of uh universes of your own creation but how did you become a fan of science fiction in general? What was it that brought you to this particular uh, uh, kind of literature? So I think um, I'm I am of a certain age that uh, saw Star Wars in the cinema at a very very impressionable moment, which was shortly before my sixth birthday. Uh, and I I think if you if you get a sort of imaginative six year old, and in, indeed it happened to my own imaginative six year old and you put them in a cinema and you show them a spectacle like that, then that child is going to want to go into space. Yeah. <laughs> now, because I was a quite a bookish and not outdoorsy child, I didn't actually want to go into space because obviously that's stressful and exhausting and terrifying. Um, and I could quite happily go there in my imagination. So it, it's, it was that spectacular image first. And then I think we were... Uh, what happened next was that I watched a British TV show called Blake Seven, um, which is almost the anti-Trek in a way. I don't, I don't know how well known it's, uh, it is over in the States, um, but it's a very bleak uh, um, show about a, a rebel group, a terrorist group, actually. They, they commit assassinations and bombings and so forth. And they are trying to uh, overthrow a totalitarian regime known as the Federation. So... Um, they are they are busy um, fighting a losing battle, and I got very very involved in that show. And, and again, I'm, I'm only about eight, nine, or ten. Partly, I think, um, because I was from uh, uh, an Irish background. I'm 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 born in Britain, uh, but with sort of Irish uh, um, grandparents and so forth on both sides, uh, and who very much, particularly my father, identified with um, the the Republican struggle so um blake seven spoke to me it's the height of the troubles as well remember so uh a tv show in britain about um about terrorists and and you know from the point of view of those people was quite strong i don't think you get that now um so blake seven really really grabbed me and um i was writing fan fiction in fact from that from a very very young age when it came to star trek um it was quite tricky to watch star trek in britain i know it was in syndication in the states um, but during the 70s and early 80s, you couldn't really see Star Trek very easily in Britain. Um, so my first introduction, and this was a great introduction, again, I was exactly the right age, was the movies, um, possibly the motion picture. I can't quite remember. But certainly, I mean, what did, what did you do as a teenager in the 80s? You went out and saw the latest blockbuster film, didn't you? So, yeah, of course you're going to go. You're going to see Star Wars. You're going to see E.T., you're going to see uh, possibly Close Encounters a bit early. You're going to see all the Star Trek films. You're going to see Back to the Future, Raise the Lost Ark. So it's part of this great, um, I, I mean, they were brilliant films. We were really lucky, weren't we? Uh, just really good action adventure. But it was the Star Trek films that I really, really loved and enjoyed. Um, and then, um, so round about 87, 
um, of course, we started to hear that this new Star Trek was coming. But of course, I was stuck in benighted blighty and laying your hands on Star Trek The Next Generation was unbelievably difficult. I was renting um, episodes. They they were releasing um, two cassettes uh, every other month with with two episodes on. So I would nip into Blockbuster video uh, and kind of rent these and then wear it out. I'd watch them both again and again. All, All my friends would be out drinking on a Friday night and I'd be at home re-watching The Naked Now. <laughs> it's so difficult to get hold of this stuff. Um, and then from there, it was, uh, I, I I met some friends who are online friends, Blake 7 fans, who, oh, not online. Um, they were getting tapes shipped in from the States. Yeah, so they kind of record a season or half a season and send it over. And also, it was different video formats, so it had to go through a conversion. It was an unbelievably complicated way to to kind of watch. And then I, I started reading the novels as well. So I started reading sort of Jean Laura, next gen novels. So yeah, that that was the that was the nineteen eighties and trying to lay lay your hands on Star Trek. Um, I was much more a consumer of TV than of um, uh, written um, science fiction. I, I think Le Guin really was. Um, pretty much, uh, it was a lot of young adult science fiction I was reading. But Le Guin, I had a, a copy of the Compass Rose that I read over and over and over again. Um, and obviously, I'd, I'd read Earthsea and so forth. But yeah, it was mostly TV and Star Trek from a much earlier age than I, I think I've realised. <laughs> wow, that's quite the, the the struggle actually to get a hold of this. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't exactly. aware of how difficult it was. Oh, you uh, had to commit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's uh, that shows dedication. Uh, I'm surprised. I, I've heard of Blake Seven. Uh, uh, I have not seen it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's widely available. Was widely available here. Um, I'm surprised to hear of its popularity there in the UK at this time, uh, considering right that uh, 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 there was still some troubles with trying to uh, get that one Star Trek episode about Irish unification this, uh, in 2024 that was banned yeah. from the UK for a long time. Well, that was. That was uh, that was a little more on the nose, I think. Yeah, I suppose say, so, right? If you announce it, rather, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Blake, Blake Seven was 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 you know uh, BBC One. It was the main channel. Mm-hmm. It was it was prime time. It's sort of ten past seven in the evening. It was wow. watched. Everybody watched it. You know, it's it's very dated. It's very slow. It's sort of if you take an episode of Doctor Who and then make it longer. Then it's it's but but with perhaps the same material but but I love it and and the moments of gold are absolute gold so um, if you can find it on BritBox or something like that oh yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah take a little look um, I I described it or a friend and I describe it as having a curious mixture of tinsel and nihilism so um, interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, what's interesting too about what you said is the way that you uh, you came through Star Wars to Star Trek in a variety of ways, right? Uh, sort of very different kinds of stories or thinking about um, speculative worlds. Um, is there something that spoke to you about Star Trek in particular that you landed there as opposed to the early love of Star Wars? Um, I think there was. I think there was more of it. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that it was Voyage Home. I think I just really loved the one with the whales. I think it tickled my sense of humour. Um, 
I think it was just good fun. It's a good question because I, I I never really got into Star Wars in the same way. Um, and I, I can't say it was to do with uh, there being more female characters on screen. Um, I possibly there was just there was just that pipeline from the movies into next gen. Um, and and really, there wasn't that with with Star Wars, was there? So no, I didn't I didn't go tracking down Star Wars novels or anything like that. I had a feeling that uh, I don't know how I got this feeling. I think I may have felt that Star Wars was more of a boys franchise. So I I I didn't I didn't go into it. Um, now my daughter knows more about it than I do. So you know <laughs> that shows yeah. you the difference. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I I admit too that you know in my uh, Star Trek journey. Star Wars was there, but it never spoke to me in the same way. Uh, mm. And it wasn't until very recently, actually. And I think it's been mostly watching the uh, uh, the streaming shows, Mandalorian and Ashoka particularly has really, uh, and or that have filled in certain kinds of spaces mm. in that universe that make me think it's much more, uh, there's much more depth there, or they at least they've gone into much more depth in, way, uh, in yeah. ways that I think are really fascinating. Uh, but the early films were fun, but they didn't speak to me at that sort of like level yeah. of um, of awe and wonder that I often get was left with with after watching a Star Trek episode. I think in in I think on some level I knew even at that age that it was actually fantasy and and not science fiction. Um, and wasn't quite operating in the same mode. And I think science fiction was much more where, where I tended towards. I will say Andor is one of my favourite shows of, of the past decade. I've, I've just published an essay on Andor, actually. Um, so um, I, I absolutely love it. Uh, and I've, I've, I've loved these new shows. But yeah, I, I think I knew it was actually swords and sorcery yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no uh and you know and, and a lot of our discussions have been I've, I've been sort of converted by some of uh, my students actually one of my students mm -hmm. now colleague who's a phd candidate uh uh in political science uh mohammed shakibnia um he's written a few essays on the important kind of anti-imperialist narrative in mm -hmm. in star wars has really convinced me that there's a lot more going on here yeah um yeah. so uh i'm excited about that um but i want to talk about your writing uh, a little bit so i want to say i i have to admit i haven't read your uh, uh autobiography of Catherine janeway it's on my wish mm -hmm. list i've been wanting to get a hold of it i just haven't had a chance to yet um but i did read um uh the autobiography of mr spock mm -hmm. so um one could you describe a little bit about what these autobiographies are uh and can you talk a little bit about how you went to the preparation of doing these novel, these these uh, fictionalized, these novelized autobiographies with these iconic characters, particularly Spock? Um, yeah. How did you go about preparing to write those? Yeah, well, Spock was pretty daunting, I can tell you. So, um, so what this series is is uh, the the conceit is that uh, they are uh, the autobiographies of certain characters, and there are there are there are there are um, institutional and, and bizarre reasons why they're being published in this way but I, I won't go into that but it's very straightforward what you're getting is the first two books uh, by David Goodman are um, Kirk and Picard and and they're, a me they're memoirs they're, they're memoirs by fictional characters and the conceit is that uh, David Goodman then I and then now uh, Derek Tyler Attico who's just published Cisco's 
it's wonderful uh, autobiography. We're we're almost like the interviewers or the editors. Um, so uh, they they play to my strengths, uh, which is that I love first person. So they're all in first person, uh, and that means that I can. Um, one of my favourite. What, the thing I enjoy writing most is is voice, is getting getting voice, the, the, as if you can hear that character speak. Um, so, uh, like I say, they play, they play to my strengths. Um, I guess in terms of preparation, um, obviously you rewatch everything. Yeah. OK, so you kind of I had a, I had a pretty, uh, pretty intense couple of months where I, I rewatched Voyager. It was, it was it was pretty full on. But that's part of the immersion. I think any any kind of substantive piece of creative writing, you, you've got to get quite deeply immersed into it, and and so do your family by default. Um, so I, I got quite deeply immersed in that. I think the other things that I try and do. Um, so obviously, I would kind of follow up with um, interviews with the actors. So I read quite a lot about what Kate Mulgrew had to say about Janeway, um, what lots and lots of people had to say about Spock. Um, and I also, as much as I can, try and read um, academic or substantial kind of reflections and analyses. So there's a, there's an essay that's very important on um, Influence on the Spot book, um, which is an essay by Erin Horakova. It's called Kirk Drift. And it talks about the mismatch between our, our popular understanding of Kirk as kind of womanizer and all these sorts of things, uh, reckless, bold, and and what Kirk is actually like when you watch on screen, which is quite rational, quite measured, um, uh, a man with a reputation as a student for being bookish and scholarly, um, uh, a survivor of massacres, yep. So the difference between what Kirk is like on screen and, and our popular conception of him, and that was a that was a really big influence uh, on how I wrote Kirk in that book. Um, so you, you you've got this huge sort of a ton of material, um, and then I think you have to think of a. Yeah, there are two things you have to do, kind of in in terms of structuring the narrative. You have to decide where this story is being told from. So the moment in that life. It's pretty straightforward with Janeway. Um, but we we went round the houses a few times with Spock and, and we settled on uh, it's the moment just before he goes on on board the uh the um uh, jellyfish to go off on the mission that yeah yeah leads to the, the red batter and all that. So um so that was the moment um that we that we sort of picked. Um so I said there were two things, there's sort of three. Um, the third one is uh, uh, and these are all basic questions that you always ask yourself when you're writing who the addressee is. And and again, um, I think the Spock one, um, uh, Janeway's is much more open. It, it's much more a sort of public address in a way. It's a public presentation of a narrative, um, which leads to interesting things because what she's concealing and, you know, what she's not talking about. Um, but Spock uh, is addressed directly to Picard, who he's made his literary executor. That's the kind of conceit of the book. Um and then I guess that the big question, apart from those sort of uh, moments uh, of the narrative, the addressee, uh, you get down to structuring the material. Because um, what these books don't want to be is a kind of summary of episodes. Yeah. So you, you, it, it's the whole life. And really, you want to you want to sort of dispense with on screen stuff as quickly as possible, because reading an episode summary 
you can just do that on memory alpha. Yeah, okay. <laughs> First person narrated, but it's not interesting. It's not much fun for you as a writer either. Um, so Spock's, I think, was was pretty complicated. I, I came up with this idea of a uh, a kind of uh, wisdom book um, that um, Vulcans write as a kind of um, reflection on their life and what they've lived. And um, uh, throughout it, we've we've got a sense of what was in Sarex, which um, is very you know objective and doesn't you know refer to love and life and family and these kinds of things. And then we've got Spock's, which is a bit messier. Yeah, <laughs> Just what Spock is like. Um, so we had that structure. And then with Spock, of course, uh, not only we were doing the original series movies, oh, no, we had Discovery to bring in. We had Strange New Worlds to not contradict that hadn't been on screen. Um, we had, you know, um, had to get Cybok in. Uh, you know, you had to you had to get the Red Angel in. Um, and I'm particularly proud we got uh, Yesteryear from the animated series. I managed to get that one in. So the spot book really was a sort of, um, and, and I love this kind of thing, synthesizing material. It's it's the academic training, isn't it? You sort of, you know, uh, you know you've been given all these sources and now you've got to generate a, a thesis length piece of work on the back of it that's coherent and advances an argument. Um, so I had a great time, but there was a, a lot of, I, I, I think when you, when you go back to his childhood, uh, now with all dis- all the discovery material, there's 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 some pretty tightly uh, scheduled days for young Spock. You know, there's a lot going on, and we couldn't uh, we couldn't leave that out. So um, finding a way through that so that it didn't feel, um, you know, and then and then and then, I think really was the big the big challenge. But yeah, that that was. Time. That yeah. was amazing to me about reading that is because uh, um, uh, I was just uh, impressed with all uh, the way in which there's a narrative woven around all of these different episodes uh, and that the way that you were able to include uh, the life of Spock in the new Trek. Um, mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is such a complicated narrative. And uh, there's all these yeah. details. <laughs> I mean, it's fun for a Star Trek fan to sort of find all the sort of Easter eggs in it and sort of see yeah. all of that. But I was thinking about this as uh, a writer, the 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 way in which you had to sort of synthesize all of this was a monumental challenge with a life so complicated like Spock's. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've often thought that Spock is really, if there's a hero of this universe, it's really Spock mm. because his his life weaves through all the threads uh, of this universe in a way that is uh, intractable. Uh, and so trying yeah. to do that kind of work uh, it was quite impressive. But uh, let me just say this. The other thing that was quite impressive about the autobiography of Spock is uh, the emotional resonance uh, that you were able to describe and put into it. Um, Thank you. Particularly, I'll say this: the 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 moment when uh, Spock is talking about the death of Kirk, his mm-hmm. friend for life, in this kind of way, um, it was very deeply moving. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, just the sense of loss, and mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, but with this kind of Vulcan stoicism, trying to portray mm-hmm. that love uh, yeah. through uh, a Vulcan uh, mindset. Uh, complicated to do, uh, mm. difficult for the Vulcans, obviously, to try to explain. But uh, to make it, that loss feel like a real loss uh, was uh, palpable in the storyline. 
Oh, thank you so much. I, mean, I uh, that was such a hard chapter to write uh, because it's it's the central relationship of his life. I think because uh, it, it, it humanizes him. I think in a in a in a meaningful way. Um, and I, 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 honestly, it was the last. It was the last part I write. I wrote. Uh, uh, you know, everything Spock says about I've, I've held off writing this was was me too. How how do you write about that? How do you write about Kirk and Spock? You know, how do you? And then think, how would Spock write about that? It really was. I know some people felt that chapter was very short. Uh, that that Kirk, it was Kirk wasn't in the book, but I feel like Kirk is on every page. That it's the it it's the it's the the main emotional relationship of his life i think um and I, and i hope it does feel that way um yeah I, I i and again that that kirk drift essay i think was very important sort of um made me reflect about kirk very differently um so it was a yeah that was a it was a hard chapter to write yeah <laughs> yeah no it felt uh, it felt that way i like this discussion of kirk because this is an argument i often get into um my my uh initially i didn't like the kelvin universe uh films mm -hmm. precisely because of the portrayal of kirk i thought it sort of yeah. leaned in a little bit too much to that uh the pop image of kirk uh, Chris mm. Pine's uh, portrayal of Kirk, rather than what I thought was really the essence of Kirk, which I often think, you know, if you, if you want to see that sort of real essence of Kirk, I often think about um, uh, Kirk uh, talking about uh, in his Shakespearean moments yeah. when he's, yeah. when, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when he's, he's a conscience of a king. Um, mm. I think that that episode where he's uh, sort of trying to, um, uh, be flirtatious, but also trying to be an investigator. Uh, you really sort of see that kind of the, the complexity of Kirk in a lot of ways. Uh, and yeah. I think that uh, I've come to terms with the Kelvin films. I, I enjoy them now for fun, but I don't. Yeah. Feel, but I feel that they put that they put some harmful things out into the Star Trek universe. <laughs> yeah, they're quite regressive on the on the women characters as well. I think that you know they're, they're relentlessly male gaze in a, in a way that you don't. Almost in a way that is worse than the '60s because they should know better. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I yeah. think the whole uh, what they did to I'm um, forgetting the actress's name now uh, who portrayed Carol Marcus in uh, yeah. uh, uh, the second film when they had this gratuitous scene of her in her bikini-like underwear, uh, and I've read her talking, the actress talking about that scene that she was, you know, she was very nervous about portraying that scene and essentially starved herself for like six weeks oh. in order to be able to shed, the, uh, you know, what she considered to be the body fat necessary for that. And mm -hmm. that she was miserable. She was fainting. And uh, it was it was a, a completely uh, gratuitous scene. Uh, yeah. So I, I really uh, I, I don't forgive J.J. Uh, Abrams for, you know, having to insist yeah. on those kinds of scenes in that film. Yeah, yeah, unnecessary. Oh, that's depressing. I didn't know that. Um, what do you uh, What do you make of the uh, portrayal of Kirk in Strange New Worlds? How How are you enjoying that performance? I, you know, the, well, that's an interesting point. I uh, mm. bringing this up. I, um, I, well, the first thing is that you know the the sort of bringing in Kirk is the Kirk of an alternate universe, the sort of alternate universe that that Pike is viewing. Um, uh, the sort of retelling of balance of terror. So it's not prime Kirk either. It's another alternative. Yeah. But when Kirk does show up in 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 Strange New Worlds, he is much more of that studious 
serious kind of person that you could see being uh, teased at the Academy by uh, what's his yep. name? Finnegan. Right. Yep. You can sort of see <laughs> well him, <done. laughs> you know, yeah. you can sort of see him being much more uh, talking about portrayals of Irish folk in uh, Star Trek. Yes. That's another sort of thing we should talk about. But <laughs> but you can see why someone like Finnegan would want to uh, torment someone like Kirk when you yeah. see him in that kind of young uh, uh, position. He's not yet the Kirk that we know. He's on his way and he's you can see elements of the swagger, the smile, yeah. the twinkle in the eye, but it's yes. not quite there yet. And a lot of people complaining that, oh, he's not really Kirk yet, uh, or he's not really well, he's, being Kirk. Yeah. He's, he's on the way, I see. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I also, All of that, I also love how he's measuring for curtains whenever he's on board. Enterprise is kind of looking around going, yeah, I'll change that. I'll knock that wall through. I, I, yeah. lo I love that as well. But the, yes, it's not that, um, it's not the smooth Kirk, is it, of the of the enterprise it's there are yep. still these edges of a younger man and i really like it too and so clever to bring kirk on but as an alternate one so yep. that they could kind of trial run uh you know how what's this performance going to be like and then we could say well you know it's a it's a different universe he wouldn't be yeah, the yeah, same yeah. person really clever storytelling i think um i i, I really like strangely well so uh, I'm, I'm i'm excited to see what they'll do yeah, I want to talk with you about this new world, and we can perhaps bring in some of these characters. But I mean, th speaking about Spock, I mean, I think that part of what I enjoyed about your uh, your work in the autobiography is we're starting to see the complexity of Spock's inner life mm -hmm. in a way that we haven't really gotten much of a sense of before uh, in a lot of portrayals. Um, but uh, Strange New World Spock is a really fascinating character. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you, you see him trying also to become the Spock that we sort of know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah, that yeah. struggle is very complicated. And what I liked about your work was you you were able to show that that learning curve uh, leading yeah. to these Thank big you. emotional moments uh, uh, with the loss of Kirk at the end. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, no, so I, I the very complicated work and it's interesting to hear it as a, a an analo uh, analogous to academic work which is something yeah. i want to get to i want to, something i want to get to so sure. i want to talk about you know so you're someone whose work has uh many of your novels have been set in the ds9 universe and and you're known particularly for giving a real uh, fleshing out in some ways the the, the world of cardassia uh, uh and of the world of the kardashians and so um I, I'm curious about your 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 take uh, as someone who um, is thought of as establishing part of the world building of the Star mm -hmm. Trek universe, uh, your sense of the vision of the Star Trek universe. So what I mean by that is something like this. You know, in the course of doing uh, these discussions with different folks, I've come to see sort of a continuum uh, in the ways in which people understand Star Trek. Mm -hmm. In the popular press and popular understanding, Star Trek is uh, understood as putting forth this kind of progressive vision of, of humanity, one in which uh, we have overcome war and poverty. It's a more egalitarian world. It's racially colorblind, for instance. This was a lot of the ways in which the, mm -hmm. the original series was discussed. 
in the past, say, few years, in the past 10, 15 years or so, there have been a lot of really insightful critics of this universe who have gone on to argue that, you know, if you look at the Star Trek universe, it's laced with all these uh, colonial assumptions or imperialist themes, the whole idea of going to know, uh, you know, where no one has gone before, but yet the planet is entirely uh, uh, filled with life, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a colonial standpoint that, you know, no one has ever been here before, but yet there's tons of people already here. Um, <laughs> uh, so my question is, you know, there's this kind of continuum amongst the, in the universe of thinking about it. It's a progressive vision of humanity moving forward. One that it's just a retelling, a rehashing of old Western colonial imperialist themes uh, not really anything progressive. Where do you place yourself in this kind of continuum? I mean, I, ultimately, what I would like to know is, um, what does the the vision of Star Trek as a mm. possible picture of humanity mean to you? Yeah. Uh, so it's all these things at once, isn't it? So mm. uh, and 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 it's where you cut it. I'm 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 going to be I'm going to be a proper niner here and be non-linear about it. You know, you can kind of drop into Trek at any moment and go, well, that's progressive, and that's you know. Uh, it, it's obviously, and, and, and we're talking about a show that's been running nearly sixty years now, aren't we? Uh, it, it's it it's it's a product of particular moments, isn't it? Particular historical moments, and it's a a product of particular institutions as well. So it's always going to be inflected by those moments and institutions, for good or ill. Um, I I think it's. Uh, all of these things are true. Yeah, uh, it's it 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 reflects sort of um, uh, American imperial activity uh, in a way that perhaps you know uh, American foreign policy doesn't necessarily do that itself. So it it does reflect that kind of brashness and going out and as you say, saying you know uh, boldly go where no one's been before, apart from the people who are already there. Um, so all of these things are true, and at the same time. Utopia is process, isn't it? Utopia isn't um, isn't there to be achieved. Utopia is the activity of um, being in the world and uh, working with what you have and trying to imagine and trying to Im imagine something in the distance and create the pathway towards it. And I think when it gets it right. I think it does two things. I think it, it critiques itself pretty well. And I think Deep Space Nine is the show that does this. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, uh, uh, sort of leading through things like um, Arrival on Bajor and the Bajoran voices saying, well, actually, we don't want you. We've just got rid of the Cardassians or the episodes that we uh, see on Earth were, um, you know, we're very close to uh, a coup d'etat. Or, you know, my favourite episode, In the Pale Moonlight, were, were, you know, they take an alien character, Garrick, and he 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 diagnoses all the ills of the Federation and throws it back in Cisco's face. Um, so DS9 is very, very strong on that critique. Um, and um, I've slightly lost my thread now. <laughs> so, so, yes, it's process. Oh, yes, it's very good. First of all, it's very good on um, on, on critique. But yeah. also, I think I think there are there are two things that underpin it, um, which I think are really valuable. There's the emphasis on diversity, and that diversity is a good in itself, and this seems to me to be palpably true. Yep, 
just on a on a species level that's good on a on a learning to live with the diversity of humanity which is just a fact uh but you could just need to get on with it and find ways to embrace it and enjoy it star trek has that at its heart um and i think when it's very good um and and tng is good at this and i think Dis- discovery is pretty good at that discovery has some really good moments on this actually it's about a uh, mode of being in the world which is curious engaged um rational but not uh blinkered not not kind of you know uh focused on goals but um not focused on on ends but on means um and i think these are i think these are really are really good things yeah it it's that thing of having a a vision of how a world can be and a pathway to achieve it uh, a method of being in the world and i think that to um to a greater or lesser degree star trek sort of weaves around those that pathway and sometimes it's disastrous and sometimes it's you know you you're watching an episode and going what were they thinking um cuz they're making telly yeah you know? <laughs> it's difficult and hard people make mistakes and and sometimes it just really gets it right uh and i think that's the thing to embrace and enjoy i think where this um where this really reaches its sort of um apotheosis for me is in the novels of Vonda McIntyre, who novelized, she wrote five Star Trek novels, as well as an incredible body of work, uh, science fiction work, her own stuff. Uh, three novelizations of the movies, um, so from Wrath of Khan, the next three, um, and um, presents a vision of the Enterprise that uh, is exactly all these things. It's, it, it's, it's diverse uh, in terms of species, it's diverse in terms of experience. She populates the movie novels with uh, Carol Marcus, you were just talking about. Carol Marcus is foregrounded as a grieving mother because we only ever see Kirk's grief. And she's the one who brought the kid up, you know. Um, so she populates uh, the Star Trek universe with the people that we know must be there but don't get to be on screen. And throughout all her books, there's this sort of... Um, I think Nicola Griffiths has a very good way of describing what it is in Vonda McIntyre. Trust but verify is how you interact with other people. Trust but verify, yeah? Don't be credulous, but be open-minded and verified. Be rational about how you relate to people. And I think um, I, I think Vonda tapped into something that was in latent in Trek um, and, and sometimes, you know, um, there on screen. And, and really brings it to fulfilment in those books, the diversity and this sort of mode of being a person in the world and be, being a full person, a fully actualized or realized person. So um, when it comes to where am I on the spectrum, I would say it's not a spectrum, it's a mosaic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it, it and it depends because I I bet that you and I could sit here and um, make a, a, a case for in the pale in the pale moonlight as the most progressive and also the most conservative episode of Star Trek. We could yeah. do those things simultaneously. So it, yeah. it critique yeah it critiques the imperialism, but it's it's a very cynical episode. Yeah. Very, yeah. No. Very, very much so. 
I mean, and I think that, you know, uh, something that I do want to talk with you, too, is I think that mm. uh, uh, New Trek is leaning more into the sort of self-awareness of these kinds of themes, mm. uh, particularly, you know, in uh, 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 Lower Decks. I think yeah. that uh, it that, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second, but the, the format of that show just allows for this kind of self-awareness of the, the limitations, perhaps, of the universe in some way. But mm. um, let, me, let me ask you this question. In in the introduction, I did mention that you had formal academic training, uh, 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 and you know, hearing you speak about the the universe, you're able to speak very deeply about the the, the psychological traumas that shape characters, uh, the ways in which characters are shaped by their experiences and the uh, and the emotional resonance that uh, that uh, under, that they undergo. Um, you are also able to analyze uh, uh, the universe from a standpoint of its cultural traditions, its mores, its fundamental principles. Uh, a lot of this, I think, represents uh, you know ways of of approaching the universe from psychological, sociological standpoints. And this is your formal academic training. So I, I'm wondering whether. Um, you've ever thought about how your previous life as an academic um, influences the way in which you choose to think about mm. and write about the Star Trek universe? Uh, do you ever find yourself, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, writing the autobiography was mm. in some ways an academic enterprise of the kind of grand synthesis that we like to do in mm -hmm. work. Um, do you find this coming out in the ways in which you approach your creative writing about this particular universe? Oh well, I was a very, very bad academic. <laughs> I was, I was, I was very, I was very slipshod and not detail orientated, and I much preferred making things up than learning things. So, uh, um, so that's one reason that I became a writer. But certainly, I, I think, um, I think it's, uh, I think what it gave me was a, a kind of eclecticism of. Uh, I think every writer needs this, but you need to be eclectic uh, in in what you read. Um, and, uh, so I, I was, I was interested in, in, um, hidden histories and histories of oppressed, of the oppressed and, um, histories that, that needed to struggle to get heard. Um, but I, I found that, um, I more mean, I, I could get to more meaningfully write about them if I abstracted them in some way. Uh, that I I felt like I couldn't. It's very odd. I wonder, I wonder what it was. Whether I couldn't quite authentically voice or or speak for a real life situation, but that I could extrapolate and analyze and reflect and offer an analysis in fiction. Uh, and and I, th I think that's partly what happened. Um, it it let me um, in investigate. Uh, questions from from true history, in in a way that I didn't feel was exploitative, perhaps, or that allowed me to abstract in certain ways. Um, so it, it it gave me freedom in a way that academic writing wouldn't have done, I think. And and also, I was, I was a very bad academic. <laughs> to now, so. um, well, I mean, but, this yeah. The, the reason by I partly ask about this too is that. Mm. Um, for, you know, I, I've spoken with many people who use Star Trek in their academic teaching in a variety. And, and, you know, Star Trek is very popular amongst 
uh, the folks that I know, philosophy professors. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like everyone teaches a measure of a man in some way or another, if yeah. that's the only thing that they ever <laughs> use with Star Trek, uh, which is interesting because I've never used that episode. But um, uh, why, why what, not? Why not? Uh, I guess because I don't necessarily teach in that area. Of, of, yeah. of, mm. uh, of the metaphysics of humanity. Mm. Uh, but I do teach classes in ethics and political uh, mm. uh, philosophy. I'm teaching actually right now a class uh, in the discipline of peace studies, um, mm. where we're talking about the nature of violence, war, aggression, and what exactly peace means. Mm. And uh, the, the the way that I'm doing this now is um, I present uh, them a, an episode of Star Trek, and then we mm. analyze it. And what I found is that uh, uh, sometimes using uh, the episodes help the students to understand the concepts mm. that we're dealing with uh, very well. They can see mm -hmm. how it plays out in the episode. The trick, of course, then is trying to then show like why the episode is an analogy for uh, uh, yeah. something in the real world. Mm. But I uh, so there's kind of certain steps that you have to take to make it yeah. applicable. Mm. But I have found that sort of presenting the material from this kind of in a fictionalized universe first helps them to mm. grasp the notion of the concepts better. Then if yeah. I just simply said, well, we're going to talk about the genocide in Rwanda today, uh, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, which, you know, is difficult because, you know, it, it's much easier to sort of say, well, let's talk about like what happened in the cloud city of Stratos and how they were oppressing the troglites. Yeah. And people are like, yeah, yeah I can see that. It's, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, half a million people were killed in four weeks in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. That seems to them in some sense, what I've, I've gotten a sense, much more sort of abstract. Uh, yeah. uh, in a way that they can immerse themselves more in this fictional world. The trick is, of course, then I have to yeah. bring it around to sort of say, why is this relevant to something like Rwanda? But yeah. I feel that uh, the grasp of those concepts and the conceptual vocabulary is, some, is something that fiction helps really well to mm -hmm. uh, sediment, clarify in people's minds. That's so interesting. Yeah, uh, that's if if you if you were... If you're teaching, if you say a fact like that about Rwanda, the horror of it, the reality of it is so immense that, you know, you 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 can't stop thinking about it, really. But to be able to reflect and analyse, to give that kind of cushion and to enable them to make that sort of intellectual, those intellectual steps of understanding, I think that science fiction is a really effective teaching tool for that. Yeah, really interesting. Well, and also something else I wanted, we were talking before uh, we started recording about your work, and I asked you a little bit about it, your academic background. I also like what you said was the fact that you feel that, um, and I think that this is just blatantly true, unless you're an academic superstar, <laughs> you're going to you're gonna be read by more people if you're a creative writer than if you're an academic writer. I'm afraid it's true, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. particularly particularly mass, mass market things. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to flatter myself that, you know, uh, uh, people might, might, pick them up and read them very quickly. Um, you know, they're reading a Star Trek book. They might just pick it up and flick through and get the gist of the story, which hopefully is interesting. I know uh, some people think I don't do enough space battles. Um, but <laughs> um, hopefully if uh, if people slow down or, or read or, or know my work, they might go, well, I'll take a little bit of time over this. Uh, Una's probably put 
more than half a day's thought <laughs> into this. So uh, there might be something that I can that I can get from it. And certainly some of my books I've, I've consciously been writing about. Um, oh, restitution and reparations and justice and uh, historical justice and these sorts of things. So they're things I've sort of been I've thought about for a very long time. I've been thinking about there's a, what you're just saying about peace studies. There's a, a wonderful line in uh, Vin Vendor's film Wings of Desire, um, where uh, one of the characters is is meditating why why people never write an epic of peace, um, 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 why um, what uh, what the line is something like what is it about peace that it doesn't endure? Why do we not sing epics of peace? And I keep coming back to this line. I keep thinking there's a really good book in there somewhere, um, but I, I haven't quite thought out what it is yet. <laughs> That's, fascinating. Yeah, That's fascinating. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the work of building and, and reaching out. And uh, it's funny, I was just listening to John Hume, who um, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for um, uh, uh, work towards the Good Friday Agreement in Northern mm-hmm, Ireland. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a 20 minute speech to the um, Nobel committee i think or what mm-hmm. the bell body and he was really good he was really good on this it's worth it's worth finding interesting um, yeah what what motivated him and and, and 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 what that work involved that's that's a, you know i think it's and this is why i like andor actually and and rogue oh, ones yeah. that we yeah we we see the um we all know that star wars is a, a flyboy hero yeah but then we get to see the work of everything that had to happen and all the people that had to work incredibly hard um to allow Luke to be able to kind of fly over and you know drop the the, the thing into yeah. the uh, that's why it's so good I think yeah um, and what um, I like about Andor uh too is that uh you really get uh in a way that really hasn't been resonant for me in the Star Wars universe the the sense of the menace of the empire yeah uh, yeah, yeah. Because you really get to see how, uh, like, what a fascist place it is. Because you get to see the kind of banality of evil in some of the, like the low-level characters. Like, what does it take for someone to be motivated to support the empire? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what are the sort of levels of affiliation? And what are the kinds of traumas that lead someone to become a fascist? Yeah, uh, you sort of see that. some of that play out, and you're like, wow, okay. This is this is significant. This is uh, really thoughtful in the ways in which the makes the the empire seem really rather than just sort of cardboard villain, really something yeah. deeply uh, scary. There's an absence of aliens as well, which I assume mm. is a considered decision, and I assume it's a, it's a sort of backdoor critique about racism that you know it's a, a, the the empire is staffed. By by a species that by people yep. that look a certain way, yeah, and the rebellion yep. is diverse, and I assume yep. that that is a conscious, um, yep. a conscious choice on their part. Such a good show. <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is very true. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I know that uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin off talked when she was writing, for instance, uh, the dispossessed, mm. um, her story of uh, an anarchist utopia. She said that she was reading. Uh, you know, anarchist essay. She was reading Emma Goldman and Kropotkin, and she was like, mm-hmm. you know, no one's ever written about an anarchist utopia in any kind of way. Uh, I want to do this. 
so uh, she was bringing her sort of academic concerns or theoretical concerns mm-hmm. uh, and tried to use her fiction to illuminate those ideas that she didn't feel had been illuminated sufficiently in the theoretical works themselves. Do you, I mean, you were mentioning you you sort of play with some of these ideas. Do you ever consciously sit down and say, I really want to talk about reparative justice. This is something that's been on my mind. How do I put this into my stories? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So mm. um, so my most recent Picard novel, um, Second Self, uh, ab- absolutely was about that. And and it's uh, it's something I've been thinking about for a very, very long time. So what, what does Cardassia owe to Bajor um and 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 how could that cycle of history um be concluded and um we can, can we get into spoilers for this book we may as, I don't know well okay. and uh, refracted through a particular character shall we say <laughs> right um so um so and that had been on that had been on my mind for a very long time and and was part of what I was narrating through some of my earlier books um and there are there are some bits in second self that i wrote more than 20 years ago um before i had a book deal uh or was writing this stuff i was i was writing the story uh and some of it, it i never posted it online never I, I would, it would just sat on my hard drive i would come back to it every so often and tinker it 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 concerned a a certain character um and and some of that um in in quite substantially actually uh ended up in second self uh and and that was a that's all about what what do we owe to each other um when there are complex histories between us and and how can how can that cycle of violence be broken and restitution and reparation and a genuine and lasting peace be made. So yeah, absolutely. I went off and read about, and of course, because I'm not an academic, I can I can read these things very quickly and uh, <laughs> and just take what I need or what I want from them. Which is the lovely thing about being a writer is you, you can you can be a sufficient expert quite quickly. But yes, I went I went to read some of the literature of that and and and, and read around it and sort of reflected on that and uh, uh, the conclusion I came to in that book was that it had to be it had to be the Bajorans decision um uh so the Bajorans in 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 the in the dramatic moment where this all crystallizes as a as a you know in true Star Trek fashion as a sort of <laughs> um you know the the moment which is exemplifies the uh the 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 grander grander scenario uh it has to be the decision of the the Bajorans who were there um to to break this cycle um but so yeah, yeah, I absolutely thought about that. Um, well, I don't know whether, yeah, I don't know what answers whether they're good ones or not, but um, certainly they were. Well, I think that's the answer that uh, Desmond Tutu gives in his notions of forgiveness: is that uh, it's the uh, it's the decision of the the victim, the survivor, mm-hmm. about whether or not they wish to give forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Well, so the reason I really wanted to talk to you. Uh, uh, has to do with i wanted to hear your impressions about this amazing renaissance that we've seen in star Mm -hmm. trek in the past what seven years or so since about 2017 which was the year that discovery first premiered 
Um, since that time, we've seen this uh, explosion of new Star Trek shows. Uh, you've mentioned Strange New Worlds. We talked about Picard. Uh, we've mentioned Lower Decks. And then, of course, uh, the, the poor, unfortunate stepchild of the Star Trek universe, Prodigy, a show yeah. I really love. And Me I think too. raises yeah. some really interesting questions about this whole issue about the Federation and Starfleet, mm -hmm. which is really at the central core of the narrative in Prodigy. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to ask you about your impressions of this renaissance um, and what's going on with it, uh, mm -hmm. particularly this. So we've talked a little bit about the vision of Star Trek that you were mentioning, um, uh, this mosaic picture. Um, when Discovery first came out, a lot of people criticized it for a variety of reasons, some sort of uh, silly and mm -hmm. spurious, but one was that it leaned very much into the kind of dark, dystopian, edgelord kind of um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, understanding of the Star Trek universe. A lot of people felt, oh, this, is, this doesn't have the hope. This doesn't have the sort of bright lights. It doesn't have the carpeting uh, of, of <laughs> TNG. Uh, some, well, I mean, just on the side, whenever I hear these kinds of critiques of these current shows, it's always laced with all this nostalgia for TNG. Yeah. And I'm yep. getting tired of nostalgia for TNG. Partly why, you know, while I liked the third season of Picard, I felt that it was just trying to appease all these people that think of Star Trek mm -hmm. as TNG, which I have yep. to say, probably one of my least favorite series. Uh, oh, so, how interesting. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I yep. like the characters in a lot of ways, but uh, TNG just overshadows so much of the universe in a way that I think is unhealthy. So, anyways, that's my sort of like little dig. But I think that yep. uh, uh, a lot of the critiques of, of newer stuff is uh, Matt trying to put them up to the legacy of TNG and saying, oh, mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't this. Um, I wanted to hear what you had to say about these, uh, you know, what some people are calling new Trek. Um, new do you Trek, think, yeah. do you think it, in, it, it, um, it, it's continuing on the, the themes that you've talked about in the mm -hmm. Star Trek universe? Uh, do you think that it brings the kind of self-critique, the awareness that you talked about? You mentioned that you think DS9 is a really good place for that kind of internal dialogue of the universe. Uh, is this something that you find in some of these newer shows? Uh, and and it, it, uh, amongst these shows, is there one that you find or a couple that you find most impressive? So I really like Strange New Worlds uh, and and I love Lower Decks. I just listened to your uh, half hour um, discussion of Lower Decks and I completely agree with everything you said. <laughs> Absolutely right. You're completely right. It's the... Uh, it's the um, yeah, it's the it's filling it's filling in everything, isn't it? It's uh, all you said about technology and bureaucracy, and you know the the people who are actually doing the work. It, it's all there. Um, I so oh, lots going on here, right? Okay, so um, I agree with you about season three of Picard, which which I think is um, uh, very nostalgic. Uh, it leads into the nostalgia. I'd, I had I had quite a few. Uh, questions about I was quite uneasy about it. it it seemed to end up in a kind of uh generational battle uh and and I got this uneasy sense I don't think this was intended that it was like the it was like the the youngsters were infected by a woke mind virus yeah and, and uh 
and it and it took the boomers to come in and, and sort it out. And then you had this sort of uneasy Generation X in the middle going, and I've ended up undercover and beaten up by Ferengi, you know. So so it was very I I I found it and then and then the way everyone was drawn into the sort of unifying family of Starfleet at the end, I, I found it quite a quite a conservative narrative uh, in many ways. What I did love, and I and I wish it I wish it had gone back to this, uh, was um, uh, bringing in this question of the harm done to the the changelings by the biological warfare. And I think I think that was that's a really interesting thing um, because the big question for me for New Trek, and this is a product of its historical moment in American history is that it 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 seems to consistently come back to this question of what do we do when utopia is under stress and what do we do when utopia is in a decaying mode and it seems again and again and again to come back to this question uh and i think discovery discovery in a way is a Discovery, I find quite an uneven show. And I think this is partly because of its uh, the problems of production in the first season. The fact that they were learning to make Star Trek again. Okay, we can't. This happened with Doctor Who when it came back. They had to learn to make the show again. So, you know, I, I forgive all that. But it, uh, once it makes that shift into the future, it's doing precisely this. How do we rebuild utopia with, with what we have around us? Uh, how what, what it, it it's collapsed or decayed or been 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 fractured? How do we uh, reconstitute it? I think um, now, strange new worlds. I think it um, strange new worlds. I think straddles that line of nostalgia in a really interesting way, because it's it's simultaneously obviously very nostalgic. But there's a freshness and vivacity to it that I think is is trying to it it's reaching into history as a source of vitality, yeah, and saying that let us reach into our past, and you know there are obvious you know there are mistakes made and 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 you know all these sorts of things, but there are things of value that we can carry forward, and let's let's find vitality in them, and I think I think Stranger Worlds, particularly in the first season, does a does a really good job of this. It I don't I don't find it a nostalgic show. I find it quite a melancholy show because it's shot through with Pike's self-knowledge of his imminent death. Yeah. And uh, uh, he, he knows what's going to happen to him. And yet Pike is this heart of the show and a source of um comfort. You know, he cooks. He's a source of support, of consolation. Um, and he's he's doing this while simultaneously having knowledge of his own demise. It's really Trek for the Anthropocene, isn't it? I think. <laughs> so I, I really like Strange New Worlds. And I think it I think it, it it manages that nostalgia extremely well. I think Picard season one did this too. It 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 uh it 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 sort of went uh, well. What do we do when it's gone wrong? How do we, how do we move past the disillusionment, as which is a shocking thing to see, Picard of all people? How do we move beyond that and into a, what what steps do we take next to to rebuild to regrow? And and I loved the new cast. I loved Raffi. 
I loved Rios. I loved Elnor. Uh, I really liked Girati, who I thought was great. And I, I really, because that seems so much of the DNA of Picard for me, that kind of, uh, we, we, we have this long past, but a rupture happened and now we have to reconstitute and rebuild. I really miss that from season three as well, which I think um, was looking for consolation in nostalgia rather than kind of regrowth and rebuilding. So um, so that's my sort of take. When it comes to Lower, uh, Lower Decks and Prodigy, I mean, you're right about Lower Decks, just are. Prodigy, I've I I it was quite tricky again to watch it in the UK. So I, I've watched it quite piecemeal. I need to have a rewatch. But I, I think in many ways it's analogous to what Burnham is doing in season three. That there's an idea of the Federation that they're striving towards. Because they're they're not from they're not from the Federation. They're not from Starfleet. They've got a hologram who's who's explaining it to them. And they kind of go, well, okay, let's try that. <laughs> so let's try that on this ship and 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 see whether that uh, um, makes us survive this or or get through this. And and I think that's what Burnham is is doing in season three. She's carrying an ideal in her heart and and trying to reconstitute it in some way. And, and that seems to me what perhaps uh, the, the 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 crew are doing in Prodigy. But I, I want to go back to Prodigy and sort of think about it again. It's a very good primer as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, this is Starfleet. This is beaming up. This is this. This is that. It's, it's a good show. So no, that would is. be my, my reading. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think um, uh, it is a good primer in that kind of sense. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, uh, I, I've said this before, uh, my kids don't like Prodigy as much as they like Lower Decks. Uh, yeah well lower decks is a delight yeah it's just such a there's so much going on there it's funny and the the, the humor operates at a level that you know you can you can find just the pratfalls funny but if you are a star trek nerd the deeper sort of humor about references and easter eggs uh, has a whole other level to it uh so it's interesting in that regard but i I find this sort of notion so this is something that i wanted to speak to you about the question about hope Mm. Um, and you know, Star Trek is often talked about as hopeful science fiction. Mm. Uh, a critique, as I mentioned, of early discovery was that it didn't seem to lean into that hope as much mm. um, of other places. And so, uh, uh, you know, I think third season of Discovery uh, starts to reference that much more when you're trying to do this idea of rebuilding the Federation. Um, in fact, a couple of the episodes there, right, I think are entitled something like that hope is you or something of yeah. that sort, right? Yeah. Hope becomes much more sort of an explicit kind of theme in discovery as well. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, the premiere episode of Strange New Worlds talks mm-hmm. about this kind of question of what can we hope for, particularly when they go down to that planet that's involved in this civil war. And Pike yeah. has that marvelous speech at the end in which he sort of goes through the history of the 21st century on Earth to talk yeah. about all the destruction and the hope that came out of that. Yeah. Um, so there there are these moments in which we're talking about hope. As I've you know talked about uh, on the program, Lower Decks leans into this question about like, well, who's doing this work of building hope? Um, exactly. Who uh, and and what are the ways in which we fall short when we bureaucratize or corporatize uh, the pursuit of hope? Um, yep. 
Prodigy, the reason that I like the sort of main storyline, this is kind of a bit of a spoiler, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, part of what's going, what's really interesting there is like, is first contact with mm -hmm. alien species really going to be a good thing? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. the, so the whole mission of of, of Starfleet going out uh, to strange new worlds and to boldly go and meet new people. Um, that sounds promising. That sounds exciting. What happens when it goes disastrously? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so um, Lower Decks <clears throat> leaned into this and like sort of said, well, what happens when we don't follow up with societies? Yeah. Like the first contact. <laughs> and then we sort of leave them for 50 years. Like what happens? Um, Prodigy sort of suggests might reaching out be disastrous. Mm -hmm. for a society an alien society um mm. so uh i think that there's some interesting kinds of self-awareness of the ideals of star trek yeah. but it, they don't abandon them in the face of these difficulties they have to realize there's there, there has to be different ways to reconstitute those ideals for a new understanding exactly. and so um, I, I do think that you're right utopious process isn't it yes isn't i it? think that's, a, yeah. that's a, bringing back to that, i think that's exactly right that your sort of picture or your analysis of what's trying to going on here with new trek mm. is trying to make us aware that the utopia of of star trek is something that is an ongoing thing that has to be reworked rebuilt mm. rethought and re-understood you don't abandon the principles but you can't just simply apply box cookie cutter kinds of exactly. uh, solutions all the time and, and expect that they're going to follow out that way uh, we have to be conscious and aware of what our ideals mean and if we're not that can be that can be really disastrous for a society mm -hmm. and i think that that is very uh self-aware allegorically of the mm. writers for our uh, societies like the UK and like the United States that are dealing with questions about diversity. Uh, what do mm -hmm. we do with uh, multiculturalism? There's very strong movements uh, in both places uh, that mm -hmm. are rejecting the idea of diverse multicultural democracies uh, mm -hmm. and moving more to more towards ethno state, in some cases, explicit fascism. This is yep. a big struggle in our world. And it seems that the yep. new Trek is trying to at least lay out the hopes we're thinking about our social ideals in these ways that might be able to help us to navigate these difficult kind of political times. Yep. Yeah, I think DS9 has always has the quote, doesn't it? Uh, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's, it's and I and I think this is I think that these newer treks are, are wrestling with this in a in in I'm sure it's a conscious way. These are good writers. Um so uh but 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 I as I always say, I think that's part of Utopia's method, isn't it? A conscious in the moment first contact would be different from world to world yeah um how you handle this ethical dilemma will will be different in in context we can we can have uh, a a well established set of tested rules and and methods uh but someone's always going to throw you a curveball i think <laughs> and and lower decks is good at that in particular i think um it's it's more watched in this house by uh by my kids than than prodigy actually the one we watch oh, again and again the two most watched episodes of star trek uh, in our house as a family so obviously i uh, there's me and my garrick episodes are um the second episode with peanut hamper 
the one with oh, the bird yeah. people, yeah. Um, and and fascination from Deep Space Nine. Yes, <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, interesting. Who wow. would have thought? Yep. Well, you know, we could go on and on and on. I think for hours uh, talking about uh, uh, about our favorite episodes. And perhaps we should do that at some point. We should. We should, get, we, yeah. we should come back and talk about that. I want to ask you uh, about where your work is going now. Uh, so I know that what I, often happens in your work, uh, reading about you, is that um, the studios, uh, the the people who own this IP, they reach out to you and they say, "Hey, we'd like you to write this." So you yeah. have this kind of direct kind of conduit to the the people who are shaping this universe in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have your input into that uh, process. Uh, so where does your work go from here? Do you have more that you're doing in? I know that you write in many different universes, not just Star Trek. Mm. Uh, what's next for you in terms of your work? Right. Well, I have a couple of projects that I can't talk about yet. So um, uh, I, uh, I'll you know, come come back and ask me in a in a couple of months. <laughs> so a shame. It's a bit it's a bit unlucky, but I I, I can't talk about them yet. Um, I've just done a nonfiction Doctor Who book actually. So uh, with a with a couple of very good friends of mine um, called Utopia, which is a sort of lovely um, encyclopedia. But uh, again, it's very close to the autobiographies, actually. It's sort of point of view and voices of characters and so forth. Um, but what I think people might be interested in, in terms of what I've just written and what's coming, uh, is my my essay on Andor and Rogue One, uh, which is an essay about the relationship between historical fiction and uh, science fiction. And it draws on um, uh, The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengrow, which is that fantastic, incredible book of anarchist um, origin story making, which I, I, I just loved uh, when I, I read it when it came out a couple of years ago. So I kind of um, I, I talk about uh, The Dawn of Everything. I talk about a, a little bit of anarchism. There's Andor, there's Rogue One, and there's Garrick in this essay. So I, I think people would, would really like it. It's about historical fiction, science fiction. It's in a book called Writing the Future, which is a collection of essays um, edited by Dan Coxon and Richard B. Hurst. Um, and then I think the other thing, this is funny, isn't it? It's all, it's all academic work after I said I don't do any. Um, I have an essay coming in a collection of essays about Star Trek tie-in novels. Um, and it's a, an essay about um, the Star Trek novels of Vonda McIntyre. Um, so Vonda was a, 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 a very close friend of Ursula Le Guin. I, I, they holidayed together, were extremely close, um, and um, uh, wrote together, um, great admirers of each other's work. Um, and um, Vonda was a, a terrific science fiction writer, really, really good. Um, Dream Snake, I think, is possibly her, her most well-known um, and was right in the heart of all those sort of uh, 70s um, arguments about feminist science fiction. Um, so what I, uh, the estate, Vonda McIntyre's estate, very kindly let me read her unpublished last novel um, called uh, The Curve of the World, which is um, a historical one, actually. It's sort of set in uh, uh, an imagined um uh, Minnow and Crete, and it's about a voyage around the world. So a wonderful novel. It's mad it's not been published yet. Um, so what I did was I, I took the Star Trek novels and I, I put them in the, the full context of Vonden McIntyre's Earth and tried to draw out 
um, the 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 themes and the uh, 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 the way she builds and constructs her world worlds that are consistent throughout. And I had a I had a lovely quote from um, uh, the editor of the books um, who worked with Fonda at the time. He he said, you know, because um, she did the uh, the 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 she did two really high profile novels. Uh, so novelizing Wrath of Khan. So Roddenberry novelized the motion picture, and then she novelized um, the three movies, and then she did uh, one of the first big novels called Enterprise. And the the editor was saying that you know there's a there's the way Vonda writes Star Trek that's absolutely in the DNA of of Next Gen. That there's there's a little bit of what what she does there. He believes is is really a, a big influence on the way that Next Generation is kind of conceptualized and um, and, and and pans out. So it's a she's a really wonderful wonderful writer, and the Star Trek novels are absolutely. The 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 it's it's Vonda's Star Trek when she you know you're not you're not reading <laughs> this is this is Vonda's vision of the world through a Star Trek novel in their mm-hmm. their marvelous books. So that essay is about 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 her whole body of work and um, uh, um, yeah, I think and, and fingers crossed that will be out this year. So I'm very pleased with that that essay. I think it it came out very well. Yeah. Are so both I, of those are both of those out this year? Your two uh, articles. So. Um, the Andor essay came out last year, so oh, okay. writing the future is already out. Uh, and then this one, I hope, will be out um, uh, later this year. Um, but otherwise, people could could go and have a look at my Firefly novels, which um, uh, I think are the most recent things I've written. Um, so my last one was a sort of retelling of um, Charles Portis's True Grit. Um, so I had a I had a little. I think Firefly is very interesting because it's sort of it it. There's an uh, there's an uneasy uh, the the more you watch it you kind of go you're you're sort of being asked to cheer on the Confederates here aren't you yeah so um, yeah 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 <laughs> which I was a little bit obviously and you know I, I took a bit longer to get to that just because I'm British um, but 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 that novel kind of goes into that a, a little bit so um, uh, interesting um, yeah so it, but but it's it's unashamedly a kind of uh, rip off of True Grit, which is one of my favourite novels, actually. So, um, so, so people might enjoy the Firefly books, I think, because uh, yeah, the the libertarianism is uh, <laughs> it's it's really a, yeah, interesting. That's an yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah, we could talk about that. Uh, I think that's been my sort of hesitancy to ever get into that. When I first saw this, I was like, I'm uneasy with the analogies that are being thrown around uh, yeah. here with this universe. <laughs> and so, um, uh, but in any case. Um, uh, I think we have to have you back to talk about your Andor essay because uh, I'd like oh, to speak yeah. to you about Star Wars. And, uh, you know, we have talked about uh, uh, anarchism in Picard uh, on the program before, too. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, but uh, I want to we've talked so much about Star Trek. Uh, I want to talk with you now about Star Wars, perhaps. And so we'll have to have yeah. you come back. But um, let me just say uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Una McCormick, for uh, sharing your time uh, and your insight uh, with uh, me. 
uh, I am much appreciative. And I hope that we can continue to have these kinds of discussions. Uh, very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank, thank you very, very much for having me. So definitely no. back. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. And uh, I want to thank every one of you for tuning in and listening in. Uh, if you have any questions, if you would like to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of the Inaris Project on a variety of different socials. We're on X, formerly Twitter. Uh, we are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. We are on Blue Sky. Uh, and Mastodon. So there's a variety of ways you can get a hold of us. Uh, if you are on YouTube, uh, you can leave us a comment down below and let us know what you think uh, about our discussion about the Star Trek universe and uh, the writing process of someone who helps to shape the Star Trek universe, Dr. Una McCormick. Uh, I'm uh, uh, extremely glad to have had her here today, but thank you for showing up and uh, let us know what you think. So uh, thanks very much, Una. My pleasure. Paul Cardassia. <laughs> <laughs> Live long and prosper. Indeed.